Welcome to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Tom Slay is a poet and what I call slow journalist or journalist without a deadline. He was last on the show with me in 2018 for his companion pieces, The Land Between Two Rivers, Writing in an Age of Refugees, which were essays on the Middle East and Africa, and the poetry collection House of Fact, House of Ruin. Today we talk about The King's Touch, another collection of poetry dealing with many of these same issues of war and refugees, which in light of recent events have taken on new meaning. Enjoy the conversation. Tom Slay, welcome back. Thanks, Mari. There could not be a better time to have you back on the show. I know the last time that we talked, which is 2018, to reset us in time, I said all of this is so relevant right now with what our country is going through politically. And now, again, what the world is going through politically, it's uh, it feels ripe to have you back on. Well, I'm, gl- I'm glad to be here. Thanks a lot for having yeah. me. So for listeners who may not have caught our last interview or may have forgotten it, maybe we start by taking a step back and revisit how you came to be in the Middle East in 2007, so we can sort of set the stage for your unique position witnessing wars. Sure. Back in 2007, I got invited uh, to go to uh, Beirut and also uh, to Syria, to you know Lebanon and Syria by just a small mom and pop organization that was run by a, a Syrian man uh, whose name is uh, Munir Akash, who was a translator of Mahmoud Darwish, a well-known Palestinian poet, and his wife, Amir Al-Sain, who is Lebanese and also a poet and a scholar. And what they wanted me to do was to basically talk to Palestinians, both in uh, Syria and Lebanon, and try to tell, you know, a more personal story as opposed to the kind of um, policy wonk oriented stories that frequently get told in, you know, more mainstream press. And when I uh, arrived there, a kind of mini civil war broke out in Lebanon. And the the violence that started when I arrived only escalated uh, throughout the rest of the summer until finally there was a full-fledged siege by the Lebanese army of a uh, refugee camp up in Tripoli in which a supposedly Islamic militia had holed up and basically the army had to empty the refugee camp and essentially destroyed it. So the violence all that summer was escalating and I, had, in part, I went there to write about the aftermath uh, of the 2006 war between Israel and Lebanon. And the way I'd gotten into this, Mari, just briefly, was I, I wanted to go down to the south, uh, where most of the fighting had taken place in 2006. And I got taken down there by a uh, young man who was moonlighting as a taxi driver while he got an engineering degree at Lebanon University. And he took me to a place called Kana, where there had been, and this is a very controversial term, believe me, I've learned that anytime you say a word like this, you will occasion controversy. Mm. But the, the word is that a massacre, and there were 28 people who were killed, uh, citizens, uh, during an Israeli airstrike on the town of Kana. And it was an whole entire, uh, an entire extended family. And the circumstance of it was that he was a member of the Red Cross. And so he took me to this place where he himself hadn't visited in a year since the war was over. And he took me to a particular place. He said, when I was here, you know, I, I, I couldn't see very well. There was smoke everywhere. It was extremely early in the morning. And I happened to see a girl who was buried up to the neck in rubble. And so he said he tried to unbury her and got her unburied up to the armpits and then said, and then I got her under the armpits and I went to lift her up. And then I will never forget what he said. He said to me, and when I lifted her up, she wasn't there. And I said, what do you mean she wasn't there? And he said, well, the bottom half of her wasn't there. You know, she'd been blown in half. And at that moment, I had never done any journalism before, Mari. I was way out of my depth. I was completely over my head. (laughs) (laughs) And I just said to him, look, you don't have to go on. Uh, with the story if you don't want to. And he just said to me, uh, no, I'll tell you my story, but you have to promise to tell it to the world. And I just felt at that moment, I never felt such a sense of commission. I never felt such a sense of responsibility. And I never felt such a strong sense of complete inadequacy. Mm, right. <laughs> <laughs> because, 
you know, how does an outsider tell that kind of story? And we could talk about that later if that's of any interest. But, yeah. you know, the, the thing about it was, and this is a story I've told before, you know, every time I tell the story, I actually worry that in telling the story that I'm kind of leeching it of its yeah. emotional kind of resonance. And I'm deeply reluctant to do that. I, I don't want it to turn into, you know, just, you know, Tom trotting out another one of his, you know, tricks. And, and so that's one thing that I kind of rebel against in terms of my whole persona. And having done this kind of uh, journalism, writing this kind of poem, I, I think that's one of the things that when I was writing this current book that I was deeply aware of and wanted to do something somewhat different. But, you know, in, in any case, I wrote this long piece about my experiences there. I did try to tell a story as, in as nuanced a way as possible, but I have no gift for policy speak. I'm not a wonk. I don't want to pretend to be an instant expert. And so my role always in trying to write about these things is just to admit everything I don't know right up front and build that into the piece as part of, part of my quote unquote persona. I'm not interested in you know, doing the war as hell persona. I've looked into the abyss and came out with this story. It just strikes me yeah. as idiotic. And, and there's an awful lot of that tight-lipped war reporting in which you get, you know, short sentences with kind of punchy details. And, you know, <laughs> right. It right. all just seems ridiculously rhetorical to me, as opposed to just say, yeah, I, complete, I was completely in over my head, and this is what I learned. The, the other thing I'll say is that I don't, is the only way I can write about a place convincingly is to have the texture of the place imprint on my nervous system. And until it does, I really can't write about it in any way that's interesting or meaningful me, for me at least. And by texture, I simply mean that I'm very, very deeply interested in the details, the small sense impressions. I, I'm very much interested in the small picture and the big picture. I'll leave that to other people. And that's the way I got into it. Remind me how long it took you to write poetry about it after you experienced it. Like, how long did it take for that texture to imprint on you where you felt like I have absorbed enough of this place that I can have something unique to say about it? Right. That's a great question. You know what I think? My, I, I think what it was was this. When I got back from uh, Lebanon, uh, weirdly, I, I, you know, I almost immediately ended up in the hospital uh, with an emergency gallbladder operation. And while I was in Lebanon, it was, it's a strange thing to tell, but here it is. I got uh, terribly sick in Beirut, and I, I didn't know what in the world was the matter with me. And it's part of my history that I've had, you know, I've had a potentially threatening, life-threatening blood disease for, you know, most of my life since I was 26 years old. And so I was worried that this was flaring up at the worst possible time. Well, one of the people I was traveling with, weirdly, had been mistaken uh, for John Kerry. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so when he heard I was sick, he was able to get me an appointment at the American University of Beirut, the hospital there. And so, of course, this physician very kindly let me... <laughs> He did an MRI on me just to make sure that I was okay. And he did it because he thought that I was part of John Kerry's <laughs> entourage. <laughs> this guy. And I, I asked him what I could pay him. He said, you know, it's on the house. And I was astonished by this, you know. And anyway, the story does have the sequel because when I came back to Lebanon a couple of years later, the person whom I was with uh, began to tell me the story about how two years ago uh, a journalist had come to Beirut and had gotten sick. It was part of John Kerry's entourage. Oh my and God. That's yeah. So great. it suddenly <laughs> turns great. into like, you know, and I'm sitting there listening to the story told about me thinking, huh, maybe I better keep that quiet. <laughs> <laughs> How <laughs> but, meta. <laughs> yeah, totally meta. But you see that kind of thing, the absurdity of that in relationship to what this poor young man told me about this finding this girl who'd been blown in half, you know, the, the absurd and the tragic, you know, yeah. cheek by jowl. Yeah. That, that seems to me to get more of the texture and, you know, the reality of daily life into something than if I were to, you know, sit around and, 
you know, pontificate about, I don't know, any number of abstractions that I could purvey. Yeah. And, and, and that's the kind of thing that is most present for me when, when I'm trying to do this kind of, of, of journalism. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, but. yeah. This is kind of personal, so feel free to, to not answer it. But oh, as, I was, sure. as I was reading this poetry and reflecting on your past and your experience with the blood disease, I was wondering, do you feel like there's something about having a life-threatening disease that you've lived with for your life that enabled you to go over to Syria and to Lebanon at that time. Like, I feel like that's just not what your average Joe is going to take on, you know, that it, it yeah. would feel scary. And, and I was just wondering if there's any conversation in your body about mapping uh, on to an experience. Yeah, I think that's a brilliant question, actually. And I thought about it a lot. And I particularly thought about that question during COVID. Yeah. You know, because when I was 26, you know, I came down with this blood disease and I've written about it. So I, I, I'm not trying to be embarrassingly personal here, but so it's out there. But in any case, when I was 26 years old, I came down with this blood disease and, and the joke that goes around in my head now is, well, you'll be the oldest living, you know, poet who never did die of a potentially threatening life disease. <laughs> you know, because I was 26. And at that time, you know, the median age was from diagnosis to death was about 10 years. Mm. And so I really, I lost all sense. The, the, the future became a total abstraction to me. Mm-hmm. But what happened was, and I've thought about it a lot, particularly since COVID came along, is that I was suddenly felt you know, deeply isolated, totally different. I was cut off from my past. Whoever I was when I was 25, there was just seemed like there was like no thoroughfare between that person and who I turned into when I was 26. And I was suddenly in the middle of this. It was like fate, you know, comes up behind you and grabs you by the collar and shoves your face against a window and says, look, look. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that feeling of intensity, I'll never forget that moment, really, because I was looking at a window and I saw, and, and right in front of him was this immense sunflower, uh, you know, a fall sunflower with all you know and you could look into it and it looked like an immense eye Hmm. and so i was staring into this big dead eye and it was really beautiful and the knowledge that i could be dying at any time between 26 and 36 sort of just amped up the kind of intensity of all of of my perceptions really Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then you know i didn't die You know, no one knows why, you know, yeah, weirdly, I outlived the doctor who diagnosed me, who also had my disease, which is incredibly rare because it's a very rare disease. And so what happened then is between the ages of 26 to about 40, I I was just desperately ill. You know, uh, I, it's a miracle to me that I didn't die, almost did die three times. And then for some reason, unknown to anyone, I began to get better, not well, but better to the pl- part, place where I could, you know, pretend that I was having a normal life. And I also learned that, you know, denial is a very handy, <laughs> useful thing. <laughs> and, and suddenly I was imitating a normal person. It's as if you were living, you were a, somebody who was brought up on Saturn where the gravity is like 30 times what the gravity is on earth. And somehow you manage to move like a normal earthling. Right. <laughs> you right, know? Right. And so what happened then is suddenly, and, and, and before I was 26, I'd wanted to be an anthropologist. And the reason why I wanted to be an anthropologist was because I couldn't think of a more interesting way to spend your life than going among people who are really different than you were. Mm. <laughs> right. And of course, that ambition got scotched entirely by the illness. And then it was about another kind of adventure. It was about surviving. But then when my condition got better and this opportunity came along, I said, well, sure, why not? And I think I wasn't aware of it until really until about three years ago, two and a half years ago when COVID began, as to what was linking up. And when 
when I began to do this journalism, your point about my nervous system, you know, my body having a certain kind of tolerance or, or need and necessity almost for a certain kind of intensity, that was mirrored in what I experienced as a journalist. Mm-hmm. And so those two things sort of came into interesting relation. And I'm not really talking about the experience that, you know, other journalists talk about and which I've observed and up close and personal and, you know, one of the great journalists in Lebanon. And then is turning into an intensity junkie, you know? Right. right. That's a danger. When I do the kind of journalism I do, I, I don't ever knowingly <laughs> or right. will, willingly uh, put myself in harm's way. But the fact is, when you're doing this kind of thing, you're almost always in a place, you know, where there's a war, has been a war, will be a war, and you're taking your chances. You're taking hopefully smart chances, and hopefully you're making good decisions. And people often ask me if I'm afraid, and I say, well, I I don't really have time to be afraid. Matter of fact, I don't have time to feel much of anything. Right. You know, Um, basically, I'm just too focused on the logistics are overwhelming, (laughs) Right, right. Uh, and, and I have so many places to be and to get, and I have people I want to talk to. And so it's all about having your attention focused outward. It's, it's not about me. And one of the things that's wonderful about this is that that kind of outward focus is a much different kind of attention than this kind of intensity junkie thing, where it's all about the intensification of your being as opposed to observing this what other people are going through and the way all of this links up with covid was that when covid came along even though i know everybody's situation is quite different you know some people have vaccines some people don't some people have access to medical care other people don't but i was here in new york and you know in the beginning of it when it was really quite terrifying you know i lived in the neighborhood you know they have the you know there's the famous detail of forklifts lifting body bags into refrigerator trucks well, that detail kind of reminded me of, you know, the body bags that get unloaded in, a, you know, a Delaware Air Force base when soldiers come back from overseas. But here it was just ordinary civilians, you know, just ordinary people because the morgues had overflowed. And, I, you know, I lived right near body, you know, uh, Brooklyn City Hospital and I would walk by it and there you'd see it right in front of you. And suddenly in this weird way, this profound isolation that I felt, this kind of difference between myself and other people, even though it's not a difference that it's not anybody's fault. It's not, it's just a fact, you know, that's it. It, it, There's no particular moral, anything that attaches to it. It's just, that's just the condition, you know, it's no different than other people. They also have their strange, isolating psychological and physical factors, which other people don't know about. And and there's no reason why, you know, I'm not trying to say that mine is special in any way. It's not. But, but what happened is that I began to feel this weird sense of communion that suddenly everybody was in this odd way vulnerable. And, and it linked up who I was when I was 26, when I first came down with who I am, you know, it's 69. I mean, I've lived 34 years longer than I <laughs> thought I was going to live. Right. I mean, it was more that point that I was trying to get to than the intensity junkie of if you felt like I have these bonus years and this is how I'm going to spend them, you know, which is not just toiling away at a desk in the top of an IBM tower. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wouldn't be any good at that. Right, right. IBM was lucky. Well, that's all a good segue to introduce the collection because, because we should say the collection is a lot of things. It's, it is about war and refugees and and revisiting those old topics, but it's also about COVID and it's also about mortality and it's also about your battle with your illness. And so, well, I'll let you introduce the the collection, kind of what was on your mind, because not every poem, you know, you could write a thousand poems, they don't all go together. Um, And so I, you know, I just love to hear sort of the big thematic things that were bumping around in your, in your mind when you put the collection together. Well, you know, one of the things I think I I talked about it earlier, and that is not turning into a kind of professional purveyor of overseas horrors, you know what I mean? Uh, Mm -hmm. Disaster porn, you know, is is one of the terms that's been used for it. And and, and when I was putting together this book, you know, it's interesting. A friend of mine asked me a rather similar question just yesterday, and um, they wanted to know why I'd begun the book 
uh, with a poem called Youth. And what happens in that poem is just that there's a, a, a you know, a, the speaker is a kind of journalist. Anyway, he's a journalist who's had certain experiences that I've had, and he's trying to do a story about how, you know, soldiers in war cope with the stress of battle and the fear of dying. And the, uh, the journalist can't wrap his head around the story because, uh, and, and this is something, you know, these incidents are something that happened to me in both, you know, Mogadishu and uh, experience that happened in Mogadishu, Libya, uh, Iraq. And, and what happens is he can't wrap his head around the story because there are these two little boys who keep playing <laughs> in the military compound in front of him. And they deeply remind him of him and his twin brother. I used to play exactly the same kind of game, you know, hmm. they're, they're playing, you know, soldier. And the interest that the, the different thing than my childhood was that every day around a certain time of day, mortar fire would come in mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, uh, and the kids are just so used to it. They keep on playing. They, they just, they just keep right on doing it. And so one of the things that happened when I was trying to write that poem was I had this very personal strand. And then I had, you know, this other strand of, you know, the apparently more important story of soldiers, how they cope with death and the fear of dying. And then I decided, well, what if you wove that strand, what people would have sensibly call political with the strand of something just really personal and see if you could actually pull it off, have those Mm -hmm. two things in conversation with each other. And I don't know if it's the poem succeeds. I don't make any claims for the poems. It's you know, that's really kind of for other people. I do. Yes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But in any case, but in any case, it was, it was a revelation in a way to start the book like that, because it sort of gave me a key that I could layer these really disparate experiences together. And I could find, if I could find a kind of way of, you know, making them seem like on a spectrum of emotional accuracy, as opposed to radically separate kinds of experiences that don't have any connection. Well, then suddenly I felt, well, that's a way out of this turning into your own cliche, you know, Mm-hmm. the war right. is hell persona or you know oh he's the guy who writes about you know extreme circumstances in war with you he, he's the refugee guy and i you know so much of our world is about branding and i i, I just that's just not how I, how I want to experience anything in my life you know well, and it, it both addresses the question of authority, which you alluded to a little bit earlier, and we can get more into that, yeah. of who has the right to tell these stories. So this puts you yeah. squarely in the camp of this is as much my story now as as anybody's, right? And it also answers that one of my other questions, which is, and it, it superficially sounds like a stupid question, but the difference between being an essayist journalist and a poet. And I I think entering this, we talked about this a little bit last time, entering this territory through the eyes of a poet is so much different than entering it through, I'm here to report the facts and I'm here to tell you actually what's happening as opposed to experientially what's happening. Right, right. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. You know, it's curious, the whole issue about, you know, who, who has the right to tell the story it's sort of like when you've been in a first, when you put your body in a particular place, I wouldn't know how to answer that question for anybody else, you know, and I'm not even sure I, I know how to answer the question for myself. It's a, it's a, one of those stories, which, you know, I mean, it's one of those kind of stances, which lends itself to extremely polarized, you know, ways of thinking about these problems. And I, I, when I'm, one of the things that I'm most concerned about, my mind works by contraries. As soon as I come up with some kind of certainty, I begin to like wonder about it. You know? mm. <laughs> and, and so for me, everything is, a, for me, it's all about trying to be as true as you possibly can be to the muddle of what your actual emotional responses are to something and to try to be honest, as honest about that as you can in language that will register with great accuracy what the differences are. And if I don't right from that point of view, then the language is really boring. (laughs) Because I think the harder you have to work in order to register these really fine distinctions, these really fine nuances, the more interesting the language, the sentences can become, even if the vocabulary itself is relatively simple. Suddenly the syntax begins to embody certain kinds of contradictory states of emotion 
contradictory states of mind, just in the kinds of sentences that you're writing, it makes it irrelevant and it makes it, it makes any kind of overt moralizing unnecessary because the overt moralizing is simply going to oversimplify what a line of poetry can do, which is, you know, it really does evade paraphrase. My guest today is Tom Slay. The poetry collection we're talking about is The King's Touch, published by Grey Wolf Press. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Well, this is probably an opportunity to read it. I think you probably makes the most sense, right? Okay, sure. So we're dissecting it before we know it. So I think (laughs) it would be fun to read it. And then we can uh, pick apart each of these things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, the, uh, the basically the situation which I described uh, earlier is the situation which pertains in the poem. Youth, smelling of sweet rosin, the Aleppo pines shadows grow taller by the hour. Two identical twin boys chase each other through the shadows. The one who's 10 minutes older yelling, I'm going to kill you while the younger one laughs. Kill me, kill me if you can. Day by day, these tea time mortars keep pecking at the blast wall, but the boys have grown so used to it, they keep on playing. If they weren't here in front of me, I'd find them hard to imagine, just as I sometimes find my own twin brother hard to imagine. I'm supposed to be doing a story on soldiers, what they do to keep from being frightened. But all I can think about is how Tim would chase me or I'd chase him, and we'd yell, I'm going to kill you, just like these brothers do, so alive in their bodies, just as Tim, who was so alive, will one day not be. Will it be me or him who first dies? But I came here to do a story on soldiers and how they keep watching out for death and manage to fight and die without going crazy. The boys squat down to look at ants climbing through corrugated bark the wavering antennae tapping up and down the tree, reminding me of the soldier across the barracks, sitting still inside himself, listening to his nerves while his eyes peer out at something I can't see. When Achilles' immortal mother came to her grieving son, knowing he would soon die, and gave him his armor and kept the worms from the wounds of his dead friend Patroclus. She, a goddess, knew she wouldn't be allowed to keep those same worms from her son's body. I know I'm not his father. He's not my son. But he looks so young, young enough to be my son sitting on his bunk, watching out for death, trying to fight and die without going crazy. He reaches for his rifle, breaks it down, dust cover, spring, bolt carrier with piston, wiping it all down with a rag and oil, cleaning it for the second time this hour while shadows shifting through the pines bury him and the little boys and Tim and me, as I'm supposed to be doing a story in non-metaphorical, real-life darkness. There's so much going on in this poem. We could talk about this all day. When did you write this? I wrote this about, oh, must have been, well, three years ago. Yeah, so you were back from, you were back from Syria. 
Yeah, I was back from Syria. I was I was back from uh, Jordan, as we talked about uh, earlier. And um, when I was in Jordan back in 2017, uh, you know, basically, I, I met a lot of Palestinian, and um, there was, of course, it's impossible not to meet Palestinian refugees in Jordan because they're probably the majority of population, despite the census. You know, mm-hmm. which right. Grossly, yeah. seriously undercounts them, but. I was there to meet Syrian refugees, and I, I, I did meet uh, a lot of them. But when, when I wrote the poem, uh, a lot of things came together at that moment. You know, one of the things that's so interesting about trying to write poems is just the formal concerns. And I sat down and tried to write this poem, and a certain kind of idiom, you know, announced itself. You know, sometimes, sometimes voices in poems, if you think about a guitar string, you know, and you tighten it up a little bit, and there's a certain kind of tautness to the speech, and then you loosen it a little bit so that the speech is a a lot more just colloquial and plain. Mm -hmm. It seemed like the the colloquiality of it, the plainness of it, that somehow that was was the appropriate voice for this particular poem. I'm one of these geeks who loves thinking about iambic pentameter. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) And and I actually love iambic pentameter as a kind of thing to uh, work toward and work against, yeah. uh, because I think pattern and variation is one of the things that keeps uh, a poem moving, because after all, when you're experiencing and feeling something as you're reading through a poem, the, the experience of emotion is changing constantly, shifting constantly from word to word. Yeah. And so to make the verse uh, responsive and sensitive and being able to sort of embody those changes as they are occurring, as the reader is reading and you're writing, that seems to me an essential thing to do if you want, want the poem to register, right. you know, the, the sort of the complexity of what's going on. Right. And where did this start for you? Was it an image of you and your brother or an image of these two little boys over there? Or tell me. It was really the two little boys. Because mm-hmm. I was just so struck by just the oddity of it, the casualness of it. How you can just get used to practically anything. <laughs> you that, know? that phrase, and, tea time mortars, it really haunts me. Yeah. yeah. And it was kind of, you know, it wasn't like anybody was terribly upset. I'll never forget there's another poem in the book in which it's about reading. And I remember, you know, being extremely spooked, you know, by the, I, I was in Mogadishu at the time and Al Shabaab, uh, this. Islamic militia, which had a, a tremendous amount of power and still does in, in Mogadishu, at least in the outskirts. And in any case, there was a soldier in his bunk and everybody was getting ready to go out on patrol. And, you know, uh, every you could tell that there was a tremendous amount of anxiety in the room. And here this guy was just reading away. Hmm. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, and, I th- and it made me think, yeah, well, okay, that's one way to deal with the stress. And certainly just, you know, acting as if nothing's going on because it happens every day. It suddenly became, well, okay, that's how they deal with it, you know. It's interesting because um, I was just watching the news this morning, you know, with the, everything that's going yeah. on in Ukraine. And these this whole troop was having, a, they were writing a play and doing a play rehearsal underground. So they're in an underground bunker somewhere in Ukraine. Mm. Yeah. And they're carrying on. They're doing their play. They're having their rehearsals. And I was just thinking of the way art not only endures, but that's kind of one of the first things people turn to is poetry and art. And, you know, they set up the piano on the border of Ukraine and Poland and, and they're playing, you know, John Lennon oh, songs. And, just, you know, yeah, it's just, just, yeah, it's wonderful. Actually. Wonderful. Yeah. 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 And it's also, um, it's curious, you know, because for example, I had to do um, a reading that Penn set up that went between, you know, between the writers in Ukraine, and, you know, some American writers and, you know, everybody, we did what we did in terms of the, you know, the poems and all the rest of that, it, it, they were what they were, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but there was something bigger than that, that was going on rather than, you know, individual people reading reading their work as you're doing it at least in my case mark i'm thoroughly aware of the ludicrousness of it you know? mm-hmm. <laughs> that you're having a group reading and it's supposed to be like you know expressing a certain kind of solidarity and you're suddenly realize you're realizing at the moment as you're as you're sitting there uh, this isn't this isn't going to stop putin this isn't going to change one iota the facts on the ground then at the same time i, I really have this deep 
belief, naive as it may be, stupid as it may be, idealistic as it may be, that, you know, that if you can put a counter reality into the balance, a sort of an imaginative, a kind of an imaginative redress, even if it's only for the length of time when you're reading a poem, you know, mm-hmm. or rehearsing the play, that it's a way in, a, I mean, the city is going to be destroyed, but you can have this other a city in your imagination. And paltry as that sounds in relationship to the actual city that's been destroyed, it's still an imaginative, you know, counter reality. And, right. and it's not, and it's not nothing. Well, and it also reminds you of your humanity at a time when it's easy to forget your humanity. Yeah. It seems like yeah. it's the first place people turn sometimes is to some sort of art, you know, whether it's music or yeah. opera or yeah. poetry. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember when I was in, in Iraq and, uh, you know, we were, uh, I was doing with my friend, Chris Merrill, these um, writing workshops, which, you know, the students there had never done before. That just isn't something that was in the university system or anywhere in the school system, really. But the thing that was so amazing, you, you would set up these very simple uh, writing situations, you know, really simple, like s- say, I remember, and then write out a memory and try to make it, you know, saying, well, what was going on in that memory? Uh, what time of day was it? Was it in your, you know, was it a particular room in your house? All these, you know, just trying to make people focus on something as opposed to a bunch of abstractions. And it's just using that pattern. I remember, I remember, I remember. And then suddenly at a certain point, just saying, well, okay, now let's change it. Now, now I want you to write, I don't want to remember. And what happened was astonishing, you know, because it had been a, uh, an entire generation that had come up knowing nothing but war, you know, war with Iran, then uh, war with Iraq, then what had basically turned into a occupation with the United States, the Civil War. I mean, you know, these people had lived for over 20 years and just a constant state of war. And so I don't want to remember almost every one of them wrote about the war. Right. It was a whole generation that had been sensitized to that. And it was an amazing experience when one young woman wrote about how her brother was a suicide bomber and how gentle he was in his treatment of her. And then the contrast between his gentleness at home and what he did to himself and to others and he blew himself up. You know, you hear something like that. That's a contradiction that I don't know how to resolve, you know, or to dismiss or, or even know how to live with, you know. And, and frankly, I, I don't want that to be oversimplified and, you know, wrap it up in a nice little bow. And I think that, you know, poems, they can, they can, they can embody that kind of contradictory emotional states. And what she wrote, did it so beautifully, you know, because she kept saying how gentle he was, how gentle he was, how gentle, and just the repetition of that word gentle in relationship to the, to when he blew himself up. And she didn't even use that. You know, she mm-hmm. just said, uh, she said the neighbor came in when they were at breakfast and told them about the car accident. And right. everybody in the room, you know, except, po- with, except possibly for Chris and me at first, knew what the car accident was code for. Hmm. And then suddenly we thought, oh, that's what it's code for. Yeah, he blew himself up. Because you couldn't say that as her her sister, you know, the sister wouldn't say that, right? I mean, that would just be too much. No, 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 it would just be too much. And there was a certain kind of delicacy about that. Yeah. Not wanting to, you know, rub, rub your face in it. Right. You know, which I also really... I, I'm very aware of that, you know, why should I, you know, rub, rub people's faces in the horrors that, you know, but that we're seeing on television right now and all, you know. Uh, well, and that's really the difference between poetry and journalism, because in journalism, yeah. you would say he blew himself up. And you would. Yeah, you'd have to. You'd have to be accurate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you'd have to be accurate. You'd have to do it in a, in a language that is, you know, it's a social language. It's a language that's meant to be, you know, read by many, many different kinds of people and all of them that, you know, can more or less understand it as accurately as as, as they can, you know, whereas, you know, poetry has a lot more leeway. It it, it can be more indirect. Right. Well, we probably have time for one more. 
and maybe okay. I might let you choose it. Choose a poem that you think um, either that gave you trouble writing it. Like every the, one of them. Every one of them. <laughs> we'll start at page one. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, something that we could pick apart a little bit craft wise to give people some oh, insights sure. into, into okay. choices you made, maybe some unusual sure. choices you made. Well, you know, since we're talking a little bit about Ukraine, I do have a phone call words from Chernobyl. Yeah. And maybe that, that would be, too. A, I was thinking that, uh, was that might be a way to bring things a little bit back closer to home. A anyway, this poem is based on the great book by, uh, which is basically just oral history by uh, Svetlana Alexievich, in which she just basically wrote oral testimony given by all of the people who, when Chernobyl exploded, went in there and uh, tried to contain the spread of radiation and what happened to them. And so there were many, many different voices and somehow this voice came out of all those voices. Words from Chernobyl. The sun beat down on me. Birds were nesting. Graves were being dug. The army gave us gloves, respirators, surgical robes. The sun beat down on us. We were living in this parallel, not earth world, where the apocalypse at the Stone Age. We were trolls, demons, showing up in people's yards, and our job was to bury everything. Bugs, spiders, worms, all colors, all killed by hundreds, thousands. We rolled them all up in big plastic sheets, not knowing what they were called, these bugs, spiders, worms, destroying their houses' secrets. And we buried them, including the soil we buried in the soil, earth to earth. And that's what I remember most, burying the bugs, spiders, leeches, when they sent me there in spring, birds were nesting. Everything was giving birth. The place was so awful because it was so beautiful. And when they let me leave, radioactive apples glowed against the snow. They told us we had to win, but against what? Physics? the universe, the atom. There's a parable about a guy who lived in Jerusalem and Christ was staggering right past his home. He watched him collapse under the cross and cry out. He saw all this, but his tooth hurt, so he didn't run outside. And two days later, when his tooth stopped hurting, People told him, Christ, Christ has risen. And he thought, I could have been a witness to it, but my tooth hurt. So was that how it always is? One minute, ants are crawling along a branch. The sun beats down on it. It's just your average chaos. And the next, that's why don't you all go fuck yourselves? My dad defended Moscow in 1942. But it was only through books and movies he found too tedious to finish that he realized years later what he'd been through. His own memory of the great event was, I sat in a trench, shot my rifle, got buried by an explosion. They dug me out half alive. That's it. My dad liked to say that people shoot, but it's God who guides the bullet. There was another poem in here that sort of reminded me of that as you were reading this again, which was Dead Me, Live Me. Oh, yeah. And there's so much imagery you have in a lot of these poems about burial and the under the under earth and the above earth and you know the story you told to open our interview 
about the girl. So where did this one begin for you? I mean, obviously it began when I was reading the uh, Svetlana, you know, the Alexievich yeah. book, yeah. but I had no intention of writing anything about it. I remember years and years and years ago, I don't know if you remember this, Mari, I bet you do, but when Studs Terkel oh, yeah. put together that, that yeah. great oral history basically called Working, yep. and, and I remember reading it and, and I had never ever seen such despair. I mean, just widespread despair. Yeah, yeah. Uh, among people about just what their daily jobs cost them, you know, as human beings. Yeah. And I just thought it was a profound book. You know? And when I was reading this, the extremity of the experience of all these people, particularly of the people who were taking care of those, you know, soldiers and volunteers who then got terrible, terrible cancers, radiation poisoning, and lingered and lingered and then died. And, and the kind of quasi-mystical way in which some of the people would talk about it, that that kind of elevated strangeness that, that, that you know, you would be bearing all the entire, you would be bearing the earth itself in the earth. Right. That image, yeah. that's really what started the whole poem, you know? Mm. The strangeness of that. You know, that even the earth has been contaminated and the only place that you can bury it is in earth. <laughs> and and yet they see... only give them gloves and uh, surgical yeah. robes. Yeah, I know. Exactly. And, and, and there they are, obviously, cannon fodder. And they're and they're doing all all of these things. And then and then the very end of the poem, you know, the father who's in this great, you know, horrendous, quote unquote, historic battle. <laughs> he has the, like the most well and and that is so typical of you know my experience with soldiers is that when people talk about the ordinary hero, hero heroism of soldiers and how they're out there risking their lives and all the rest of that in my experience you know uh, kind of bravery unto death is very rare yeah a it's lot just, of them describe just boredom tedium yeah and, and tedium. yeah tedium boredom and, and in many cases, just uh, since, you know, we're, we're not anyway, we, we said we could use this word, but the main thing that I remember in talking about, you know, and talking with soldiers about is just how, just how chancy everything is and how everything is basically a fuck up. Yeah, right. <laughs> either, right. Either a fuck up that you happen to benefit from, so you're not in the wrong place at the wrong time or vice versa. You know, but so when I was writing this poem, I was just um, I was just amazed and at two things. I was amazed at the at the kind of radical randomness and contingency that surrounded everybody's life. Yeah. And then and then just the and then just the absurdity of the kind of tasks that they were appointed to do and and the kind of rhetoric that was supposed to justify what it was they were doing that you have to win but the guy says but against what right you know? right and then yeah and then i will never forget it almost seems like a complete non sequitur but then the whole story about you know jesus coming into jerusalem oh right and then christ is risen there's a certain kind of absurdity about that that seems to me true if not more true than this kind of you know kind of heroic kind of tragic viewpoint that surrounds an awful you know catastrophe like like chernobyl right so anyway but when Amazing. i was writing the poem yeah the hard thing that was hard about the thing that was hard about it mari was figuring out how to make the lines interesting and one of the things that I discovered I, I like to do this a lot with poems you know I wrote the poem it must have had the you know 80, 90 drafts, which is not unusual <laughs> for me, wow. you know, and I, I kept working it and working it and working and trying to make the speech feel, you know, not wooden, not stiff, not this, but at the same time have more of an incantatory quality than say the more speech-based uh, idiomatic kind of speaker in uh, youth. And it suddenly dawned on me, yeah, if you just say, if you keep repeating bugs, spiders, worms, bugs, spiders, worms, bugs, spiders, and the various leeches. So that almost became a kind of refrain line. And then begin to, began to think of it as a certain kind of a poem that invokes refrains 
and has this kind of weird epigrammatic, you know, quality to it, which is how the ending comes about, you know, right. you know as people shoot, but God guides the bullet. And then the third thing that was such a discovery, which I absolutely loved, was putting the poem almost in an off rhyme, eight uh, line stanzas with in line, you know, the end rhyme at the end of each one of the words. It didn't have to be uh, strict couplets all the way, but every line in the eight line stanza had to find its, uh, you know, rhyme partner. Yes. And if you look at it, it's graves, gloves, sun, in, apocalypse was demons worms right. and and that's that's how it, the whole poem worked out and keeping that conversational while at the same time making the rhymes and having the rhymes be in this kind of run-on you know syntax so that the sense of the line you had to run over to the next uh to the next line in order to understand what the uh, grammar was doing so it had this certain kind of speed in which you're not really hearing the rhymes because the rhymes are being detuned because you're jumping over to the next line to keep up with the sense. Right, All of that, right. you know, was not, I mean, you know, talking about it in this way seems, you know, kind of cold blooded and, uh, you know, premeditated. It wasn't like that. It yeah. was like, it was, it was, it was exciting and kind of improvisational and you suddenly had the idea and you were beginning to work with the lines uh, and trying to make the rhymes come and trying to make the rhymes just this kind of echo in the background as opposed to the thing that would swat at a certain metrical moment. And that's really, Brilliant. that was when the poem really began to take off for me, is being able to make all those, those slant rhymes all the way through. And it gave the poem a certain kind of shape and it gave it compression in a way that it, that it wouldn't have had that you know if you've seen the other 99 drafts <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> of course yes right you know right. you know and i don't make any claim for this poem but i'm just saying it's a lot better than the other drafts <laughs> <laughs> sure <laughs> okay. well, well we would hope we would hope yes <laughs> yeah really no kidding <laughs> Believe me, I've wonderful. had the experience of it being worse too. <laughs> oh, sure. This is wonderful. This is wonderful. Oh gosh. Well, you know, we could talk a thousand years, but tell me, so, so you have a wonderful website and people can find a lot about you there and all of your other books are there. I think it's just your name. Yes. TomSlay.com. Yeah. Just uh, TomSlay.com. Yeah. And we must say this was put out by Gray Wolf, who I assume you love working with them. You've published with them before. Yeah, I've been with Grey Wolf uh, quite a while now. Yeah, I love, I love what they put out. Yeah, I love. Oh, them. that's grand. I'm, yeah. I'm glad you do. Yeah. Well, they're certainly mar they've been great to me. Well, we have to have you back. Keep writing. <laughs> Keep writing. I will. I will. Don't worry. That was Tom Slay. The collection is the King's Touch. You can find this and other episodes on our websites. Barbara's is barbarademarcobarrett.com. Mine is mariestone.com. Marie has two R's. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher. Music and sound design provided by Travis Barrett. Thanks for joining me. Have a great day.